This is the DLR Cast, the essential podcast for fans of Diamond David Lee Roth. Once again, your dial is tuned to the DLR Cast, the essential podcast by and for fans of David Lee Roth. I'm Steve, along as always with my good friend Darren. And Darren, I got one question for you, my friend. Mm-hmm. When was the last time you did something for the first time? <laughs> okay, that is on a different kind of truth. You're the man. Yes, okay. the trouble with never. Woo! That's the trouble with never. Uh, I have to say, before I answer how I am, I don't know what inspired me to listen to a different kind of truth so much in the last two weeks, but man, that is one of the best Van Halen albums ever. All right. Full disclosure, you did not tell me this before I pulled up that quote. Not at all. Right? Before I hit record, you did not tell no. me this. This is amazing how we are on the same same Dave wavelength. That lyric is from The Trouble Would Never from A Different Kind of Truth, the last Van Halen record, unfortunately, back released in 2012. And you are correct. And you know what's funny about this? I routinely have songs that come up on Shuffle on my MP3 mm-hmm. player or on Spotify. And one of the things, one, the Dave's lyrics always stand out, right? The lyrics are just amazing on that record. The whole yeah. record, I think, sounds great. And it, to my ears, it sounds better and heavier than almost any Van, I think, than just about every Van Halen record. And one of the big things why is, no offense to Michael Anthony, but that is the best bass sound. Wolfie's bass, that is the heaviest and best bass sound I have ever heard on a, on a Van Halen record. Yes, I agree with you. We and this is a totally improvised conversation right here. If you were to say what's the first heavy Van Halen song, I think maybe you could say Unchained is the first heavy-ish. Yeah, I guess. Song. They, and then they, they got in the mid '90s. If you look at Humans Being, that's a pretty heavy song. And yeah. then two new songs with Dave on the the, the Best of Volume One. Um, me Wise Magic is borderline heavy, but there is stuff on that album, A Different Kind of Truth, that is actual heavy. Like you don't have to – when people talk about hard rock, like let's face it, I love Kiss. Kiss is not hard. <laughs> There's nothing heavy about Kiss except for you take a song like Unholy or something like that. Well, or- yeah, they – they took some stabs at going more in a metal direction, like Creatures of the Night after Unmasked was like, there's okay. heavy about Creatures of the Night. That's oh, like a come on. Yeah. No, there's, dude, come on. Following Unmasked, Creatures of the Night with a gigantic, the biggest drum sound anybody had ever heard with I Love It Loud. I mean, it was so over the top trying okay. to go heavy. But but a different kind of truth is actually super heavy on like Bullethead and as oh, it is. Yeah. And I don't I don't know if I'm going to just keep listening to this two, three times a day like I have been. But wow, was that album slept on. Wow. That is the greatest reunion album I think I've ever heard from a a classic rock band. Yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned that. Getting back to heaviness. Right. Because you're absolutely right. Bullethead. Right. Um, But also Chinatown. That song just crushes. And that that song's the first time you ever heard on a Van Halen record the guitar player and the bass player doing one-on-one hammer-on simultaneously, yeah. right? Yeah. Just like, oddly enough, what you heard on Eat Him and Smile with Steve yeah. I and Billy Sheehan. Well, all these years later, Wolfie and his dad are absolutely destroying it on that song. It's super fast, right? It's as fast as, say, uh, Hot for Teacher. And so on my routinely what comes up kind of on my mp3 player particularly i've got you and your blues on there mm-hmm. a couple tracks from the the live in japan record that came out whatever um the tokyo yeah. dome album yeah. and i've got humans being on there which i love and me wise magic and i'm telling you man both live and a different kind of truth there is just a different attack to that rhythm section and again, this is no knock on my, Michael Anthony. I'm not here to say whoever the better player is, but Wolfie, because Michael Anthony's incredible and certainly nails it on the vocals. But as far as the mm-hmm. sound of that bass, Wolfie plays with a bit more distortion. He's mm-hmm. got a different kind of attack and just the sound of it, whatever John Shanks, the producer of that record captured on, I mean, it, you, you're exactly it. There's a heaviness to it that was different than any other Van Halen record. That's what blew me away when I first heard even Tattoo, which was poppy. But then you get into that record and you're like, oh my gosh, this is just, they're going for broke here. Yeah. Okay. Maybe Kiss was the wrong example to use, but let's say Motley Crue, people who don't really know 
music or really are not huge, huge fans of rock. Might call Motley Crue a metal band. And there's nothing right. metal about Motley Crue. It never gets really heavy, except for maybe a song like Primal Scream or something like that of the Karabi era, where right. where they experimented a little much. But I find a different kind of truth is legit heavy and Wow, uh, I don't know why I slept on that one for years. I think I only listened to As Is and Chinatown and Bullethead. And and then I just didn't like Tattoo so much. And I, I just never went there with that album. And now I'm just wondering, is it maybe my third favorite Van Halen album ever? Yeah, I, I, I'll tell you, in the last six, seven years, well, since it came out, I've listened to that record more than any other record. But I've always been the guy who loves to hear what the, the latest thing from a band is. You know, I mean, yeah. we've been listening to the greatest hits and that early stuff forever, the first six and the albums with Sammy. Yeah. But getting back to the heaviness thing, I know where you're going. I know what you're talking about, because for me, heaviness is it's not so much the speed. It's not so much the, the say, the riffs. But to me, it's the act, actual sound. So if you listen to that first Motley Crue record, there's a grittiness, a rawness, but to my ears, compared to, say, Dr. Feelgood, yeah. right, there's just a thicker, deeper, heavier sound. Conversely, the first records they did with Ted Templeman, particularly the first two or three Van Halen records, compare that to the sound of 5150, where'd the bass and the drums go, <laughs> yeah. right? And that's not to say I don't like 5150, but the sound was dramatically different. And that heaviness, so to speak, only got dialed back up a bit through the yeah. Sammy years, uh, with OU8812, for instance, right? And and as they kind of, I don't know, were together a little bit longer. But yeah, I'm with you, man. Bring on bring on the aggression, bring on the heaviness when it comes to Van Halen, because that's my favorite stuff, especially with Dave, Dave is concerned. And on a different kind of truth, you mix that in with just some unbelievably great lyrics filled with double entendres and very visual visual lyrics, man. I love it. And the look at all the people here tonight being a chorus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh. a, right. A little, a little nod to the past, man. I had. Did you not laugh the first time you heard that? Just a knowing little smile, going, "Yeah, this isn't corny. This is just a little flashback, and that's cool." Yeah, uh, absolutely. And to answer your other question, I'm doing fine, thank you. <laughs> We've we did. Back there. We did get to it. We always start in one place, but end up somewhere else, right? So. Exactly, exactly. But always great to connect. And uh, I didn't find a lot of Van Halen news this week. I think you found a thing or two. Well, you know what? I mean, there's still in the there's another. I think since the last time we recorded, there's another new track from Wolfie, which I love, which sounds great. Of course, that's, you know, Van Halen related, of course. But as far as Dave is concerned, well, still pretty quiet, uh, still releasing some artwork. There was a, a new piece that just came out. Hashtag Soggy Bottom, hashtag DLR, hashtag David Lee Roth, hashtag Diamond Dave. And the other day, yesterday, well, we're recording this on Tuesday, March 9th. But the other day, yesterday, there was a great cartoon, Dave's Stripper Mint Ice Cream, fat-free and loaded with sugar. And it says blue cow non-dairy. I don't know what it's. And then, then on March 1st, there was another one, Dave's Stripper Mint Ice Cream, social distance, uh, only, what does it say? <laughs> Who has suffered more than than the lonely lap dancer, Dave Stripperman ice cream, blue cow, non-dairy, fat-free, and loaded with sugar. So there's some <laughs> – he's making a statement with COVID continuously. I'm not exactly sure what that statement is all the time, but God bless him. I'm curious nevertheless. It makes me think of when we did our episode about the Roth Project, which was probably only like four months ago, and it feels like it was six years ago. <laughs> You're so right, man. That's so true. That's how weird like the last year and change has been. And there was one person who commented on our show and just talked about how you and I just don't get it and we don't see all the smartness. Sometimes that's how I feel with DLR, that he's operating in a much higher level than I am stripper I have no idea but bless his heart you know yeah listen it's Dave's world and we're all trying to figure out if we want to be in it were we in it for a minute did we fall out of it did it completely change its orbit who the hell knows sometimes but Dave does but I just like to try to figure it out <laughs> yeah so YouTube has been kind of good to me lately with its algorithms and they reminded me of when 
when Roth was on Howard Stern in 2002 and Sammy called in and it was, I guess, to plug that summer tour. Did you ever? Yes, the, that? Be, the best of the best of both worlds tour. That's right. Do you remember that or it's just you saw it like 18 years ago? Oh, <laughs> man, that vaguely uh, that long ago. I know that was before I ever had Sirius. I think that was before Howard was before satellite yeah. radio. So I don't think. Being in the Midwest without Howard, I don't think I ever heard that. Later on, I listened to I've, I've heard snippets and bits and pieces, and I've never actually sat through the whole thing on YouTube. It's really cool the way that it's on there because it's from Howard TV, like the short-lived on-demand Howard Stern thing. So well, actually, maybe it went five to ten years to Howard TV. Either way, they have Roth in the dressing room talking to Gary Delabate, a.k.a. Baba Booey. <laughs> then we have them going on the air doing the segment and then they have them after the segment going to the studio to cut the radio id so you kind of see him out of character then in character then out of character again which is a very cool thing but because there's not a lot of filmed released footage you can easily find of david lee roth not being diamond dave wow that's uh, a little bit behind the curtain there huh it is you you see a kinder more relaxed like when he's relaxed his midwest accent comes out he speaks like he's from indiana again <laughs> but right right <laughs> oh i'm good how are you <laughs> like you know, that kind of stuff happens out of nowhere and then diamond dave goes down to register but it's just really funny to watch him and sammy verbally jabbing on the air and dave pretty much outclassing him over and over and over again. And my favorite moment for the whole thing, I'm taking this way off course, is Howard, right. Howard's pointing out about how this tour is going to fall apart. They're not going to make it to the second show, which is actually <laughs> kind of prophetic. But Howard is going like, what are you going to open your show with? And Howard and Dave's like, of course, hot for teacher. And they're like, Sammy, what are you going to open up with? And he said something called like Shadoobie. and they're just giving them a hard time like sammy you should take howard's advice you should be opening up with a hit it's like no i've been doing this a long time howard i know what the people want i'm pretty song uh, do you know a song called shadoobie no but didn't dave do something uh what was it was a steve miller cover on the deal on the on um the diamond dave album was it called shadoobie or shadoobop or shoobop yeah yeah that was it okay so when you said that that's the first thing i thought of so i don't know i know i've got a few sammy records uh not as early stuff um you know again i dig sammy but i i I probably listen more to the and here's here's a blast from the past. He did one record in a one off band called Hager, Sean, Aronson and Shreve with Neil Sean, Kenny oh, yeah. Anderson, and Michael Shreve. And I probably listen to that record through the years more. I had that on vinyl more than I did most Sammy Hagar records. So, <laughs> yeah. And then didn't he have the was that the band that became Soul Circus? S-I-R-K-U-S. It didn't become that. Um, Hager, Sean, Aronson, and Shreve, that was a one-off in like 1984, right? They they recorded a, an album of all original music, but recorded it live. And they it was all live. They did like two shows. So they had all these songs written, recorded the, recorded the whole thing live. And then they, and with one cover song, they did a killer version of Procol Harum's A Whiter Shade of Pale. Soul Circus, before that, there was a band, I think it was with Neil Sean. Oh, man, people would know this. And maybe Dean Casanova was called Planet Us or Planet US. And I always meant to check that out, but never just got around with it. And then what is it? As soon as he said Soul Circus, I thought of The Circle, which is what he's doing now with Michael Anthony and uh, guys from his solo band, which is primarily a covers band from what I know. And I think they put out an album a year or two ago. And that might get us all up to date, my friend, on what Sammy Hagar <laughs> has been up to musically. So, And didn't wasn't there an album that Eddie was on with maybe Brian May called Guitar Fleet or Starfleet or something? Star, yeah, something Starfleet. It was Japanese TV show, Japanese only release or something like that. And um yeah, that was kind of collectible for a few years. I don't know if it's worth anything now, but that came out right on, like on the heels, right when like Van Halen was absolutely at its biggest with 1984. Maybe it was before, maybe it was after that. And I got to check the track listing because am I misremembering? 
But was there a song that was on there that kind of got reworked and ended up on a different kind of truth? Or am I, I would a, different, a, a different kind of truth had, and of course we could easily use the Google machines right in front of us as recording <laughs> this, but let's work without a net for a bit. Um, yeah. You know, a different kind of truth had a bunch of reworked older demo songs yeah. that uh, there was a song on there from. Do you remember there was a there was a movie called The Wildlife with Chris yeah. Penn, right? And a bunch of other folks, the late Chris Penn, that kind of try to follow in that path that Fast Times at Ridgemont High blazed, yeah. uh, literally and figuratively. And uh, uh, and there was a song or two. Eddie did the score for that, I think. And there was a song or two. Was it Ripley? I think it was called, which later became another song. There's yeah. all that stuff is on is on YouTube, those outtakes and demos and things like that. But uh, but yeah, whew, we went a little far left, far yeah. afield there. I mean, you could get even weirder because people talk about that one movie that Eddie scored, which I've read was actually the unofficial sequel to Fast Times at Ridgemont High. But due to some technicality, it didn't become it. Whatever it is, he also scored a second movie that was a TV movie that Valerie Bertinelli was in. It's called something like a song for Gina or like dating Gina. It's got a really weird title like that. And I never listened to that to see if anything came of those songs or the weird porn that he scored. In like yeah. Yeah. And I, mean, I know, I think we've talked about this before, but that was, that's one of the things that bummed me out was that, uh, and it didn't appear to change much, but you could probably name all his guest appearances. I'll put them all on one hand. Start, you know, start with Billy Jean, right? I mean, he just wasn't one of those guys. To, he was always ensconced in fifty-one fifty, but and and whatever else he was doing, just record all the time. He wasn't one of these guys that show up and guest on albums or show up on. I mean, when he jammed was it, on, with Letterman's band, do you remember that back in like '86 yes. or something? Yeah. Um, and. You know, there's, it, it was just very fleeting. There's a video on YouTube of him playing in a backyard party. Did you ever see that? Of what song do they do? I can't, man, I can't remember. But I don't think it was a Van Halen song. But he, uh, yeah. So I mean, just his guest appearances were very, there were few and far between. And of course, I know we talked about this too while we're on the same subject. I don't know if Alex did any guest appearances anywhere. Alex Van Halen. Yeah, there's more Eddie appearances when you think about it than you kind of realize because with the live stuff, someone unearthed some gigs that he did with Scandal featuring Patty Smythe. Oh, yeah. Considering right. that, I don't know if there's any video of it, but I know there's audio of that. There's that. There's the one off where he came out to do Beat It with the Jacksons, I think, in Texas. There's. Um, uh, I, there's some kind of a Leslie West thing. No, no, that was with uh, Van Hagar. But I think that there's something that he once did with Leslie West at a guitar thing. There's the Nicolette Larson album that Ted Templeman did that he just did a guitar track on. That's right, yep. Uh, there's that weirdo Valerie Bertinelli movie that I've never <laughs> figured out the guts to look for or check out, The Wildlife. Um, I think there might have been one other Ted Templeman album that he played on. And all this is without factoring the fact that maybe he did some stuff under Alias at some point. I would wonder. But then again, he is one of the very rarefied, very rarefied air where when you listen, listen to all that stuff, you know, it's him. Yeah. Right. I mean, I was watching that Letterman thing a couple months ago and it was just, you just know his picking style, the sound. I mean, it's in his hands, man. It's I, I mean, you instantly knew the moment you heard beat it without even, if you did not know if, if the word word had not, you know, come across Rolling Stone or metal edge or hit parade or whatever else, circus way back when pre-internet, the moment you heard beat it, yeah. you were like, Oh shit. <laughs> That's Eddie Van Halen. Without cheating, without going to Google, I also remembered he did that sitting in with the SNL band with G.E. Smith appearance. Maybe that was like 90 or 91. Oh, that's right. Yes, that's – yeah, yep. Um, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure he had to have sat in with Paul Schaefer again in the 90s. That – Kimmel. There had to have been one thing. That was that was maybe my only disappointment in what was a complete and utter train wreck of a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. Oh, yeah. Because if Eddie showed up there, one, it would have just made it more real. But can you imagine Eddie jamming with just a complete all-star band? 
whether it was Sammy or Dave, I mean, but that was, oh man, I couldn't barely watch that. It was just, it just, I don't know. The whole thing just bummed me out that time. I'm a Paul Schaefer guy to a certain extent. You know, I, so I love Paul Schaefer for the SNL spinal tap, uh, early days of Letterman. Right. And I'm not a Paul Schaefer guy for any house band performance where they play the lead vocal on keyboard. Oh yeah. God, no, no. Yeah. I'm of the school of thought that you should not do the vocal melody on a Hammond B3 or anything like that. No, no. You know, I was just thinking too, before we go any further, well, we're going further on guest appearances, but I mean, uh, Dave, obviously not a guitar player or anything, but how cool would it have been if he just showed up, you know, if he ended up on someone's album doing uh, even just some acoustic guitar pick and if somebody did, a, I don't know, a cover of Ice Cream Man or just on any song, name the name some bluesy rock act. And he was on uh, on harmonica in the credits, David Lee Roth or some I background would, vocals or something. Why not? I wouldn't be surprised if he did it under Alias. He just gives off the vibes of the the Bill Murray uh, kind of stories of you're never going to believe that this happened. No one's going to believe right. you know, that kind of thing. I just have to imagine with Dave not sleeping and the story, <laughs> a story that's going to come up in a later interview that we run on this with, with Sammy from the bad red rain. I'm not spoiling anything there, but he talked about how before seeing Dave live on tour, people are like, yeah, he was at the beach before this gig. Like meaning that he kind of goes, yeah, right. uh, what do I feel like doing? this <laughs> in yeah. other words david lee roth is not hanging around holding court for backstage five hours before he gigs i think he shows up does the gig and the rest of the day he's doing whatever he feels like and that might be playing on someone's album or uh scaling a mountain or, or something <laughs> painting painting <laughs> hence why we love the guy so much exactly so before we get to the interview and we got a great one which you probably already read in the show notes because that's where it is we'll get to that in a second one other piece of dave news that kind of got recycled do you remember a few years ago when a woman was newly married her husband's name was david this made the news and right when she got was getting all these phone calls from women do you remember this and um so that i can't even remember how many years ago that was well don't all of a sudden, this just came up four or five days ago at readersdigest.com or rd.com. The headline, How David Lee Roth of Van Halen Almost Ruined My Marriage by Nancy French. From, and it says from WashingtonPost.com. Now, I guess Readers Digest aggregates a bunch of stuff. But why this just showed up now, how many years later? Uh, this woman was barely 20. This guy, a lawyer proposed to her, her fiancé, uh, whose name was David. She moves to New York City and... They get married and she starts getting all these phone calls from the sultry some from sul, sultry voiced women, it says. May I speak yeah. to David? Wrong number, a husband. I mean, just, this was getting really a few hours later, another woman, another one. Um, it was there was so many of these women. One was crying, said we were together just yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> Brand Desiree, Brandy, Jill. Okay. <laughs> this now her husband worked in a in a midtown law firm. Okay. She was getting so many of these calls. She th- thought she was like, does her new new husband have a secret life? What the hell's going on here? Yeah. Okay. Then it takes even a, a a weirder turn. She gets a phone call uh, from a guy out out of the blue after all this, and uh, she the guy asked for David. She said, sorry, he's at work. <laughs> and the guy goes, all work should go through me. And she's like, what the hell? Who are you? The guy's like, I've known David for years. Who are you? They have this conversation. And she's and she said, I'm his wife. <laughs> and so he goes, why didn't he tell me about you? He exploded. She says it was uh, spontaneous. And this guy goes, I'll be right over. Don't talk to anyone. We have to fix this. Right. And she's like, what the hell? And then he goes, are you? Pregnant, expecting a little David Lee, and here's the great here's the great kicker, according to this woman, this from what this guy said. A kid will really hurt our comeback. And she goes, Lee, my husband's middle name is Austin. What comeback? Well, then they find <laughs> I know my own client's middle name. <laughs> she goes, Client, I'm talking about David French, the attorney. And he goes, I'm talking about David Lee Roth, the singer. Apparently, when David lived in New York and moved, 
uh, he gave up the phone number, but was still giving up, you know, disconnect was still giving out the old phone number to women, I guess, to yeah. let him down easy. And um, <laughs> the women <laughs> and somehow they got this number when they moved to New York. So that's this all how this showed up again. I don't know. I can't remember how many years ago this was, but I remember thinking that is just is there anything more rock star than that? Yeah, it sometimes you have to see. Let me rewind. When we had on Linus of Hollywood, Linus Dotson, whatever you want to call him, he was kind of speculating that maybe it's a little bit of a gimmick, the partying thing. And then you go, well, yeah, he's super shredded. He's speaking four languages. He's he's doing everything. Maybe he doesn't have time to to be drinking all the Jack Daniels and partying. Right. Then you hear this story and you go. No, he did have time. It's just he doesn't sleep. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you and right. I are trying to get our six to eight hours of sleep. He might be going for two to three. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Crazy stuff. So, and but good stuff. And speaking from good, uh, speaking about good stuff, there's a segue for you. Yeah. Uh, we we got a good make that great interview with a really really cool and interesting guy. Danny Zalisco. I, I call him pretty early into the interview, uh, the king of Arizona concerts, the king of concerts. Uh, Southwest. Whatever it is. I mean, he's not just pigeonholed to Arizona, New Mexico. As he talks about in the interview, did shows in Texas and Nevada and all that. You know, he's so good at what he does that he was independent. Then he was in that Clear Channel Live Nation fold. Then he was independent again. Then he might have been in a consortium again and then independent again. Like whatever it is, what, 40-ish years of just top-notch concerts? Everyone you could think of. Yeah. If 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 you were on tour, he probably in, – in the last 45 years, he probably booked you, including Van Halen with David Lieberoth. And he told, tells a couple of anecdotes there. But, of course, we were interviewing him because he's got this great new book out called Excess All Areas. And it's uh, it is an amazing story, amazing autobiography about a guy who came up in the music business in in the concert promotion business. And uh, man, he is just a super cool guy. <laughs> just some you, we were only scratching the surface. I mean, this is a, yeah. we would have needed six hours to get a to get um to, to get a, the sto- the stories this guy has. Yeah, a visual cue. In the middle of it, he paused and he like leaned over to his desk and he took out the biggest stack of paper that you, that could ever fit in a drawer. And <laughs> like, Hey, this is all the concerts I've done since like 1992, <laughs> you know? So he didn't have the first 20, 30 years handy. I think that was because I asked him if he did any of the Dave solo tours, which ultimately he did. Right. Right. Yeah. Just really cool. We got some great background and stuff on how, uh, concert promotion works a little bit and just um, I've he's just a funny and gregarious guy but I'll tell you what's amazing his memory is fantastic and I'm sorry I, I, the book is actually called all excess not instead of all access a play on words I think I said excess all areas I apologize sorry Danny sorry folks all excess it's available um, wherever you buy books but you can buy it directly from him and it'll ship in a White Castle box. So all the de- all the details. It's very cool. All the details are in the show notes uh, for this episode. So, yeah, I think the key is that it's a great book. But we also delved into a little bit what the state of the concert industry is now in the states with major markets on and all that. So it's not the most Dave or Van Halen centric interview that we've done, but. Uh, it really touches on classic rock in general in the state of the state. So I'm very proud of that. Yeah. And let's make sure we get the full title correct. So when you're searching for it everywhere, it's called All Excess Occupation Concert Promoter. So it came out a few months back. It's got this it's it's this very heavy. The photos are amazing in this thing. This is, uh, like we talked about, this is a real labor of love. I mean, this guy has just yeah. it's it's a great it's a it is a really cool behind the scenes book and just gives a great look at an extraordinary and interesting career. Absolutely. We could have spoken with him so much longer, but we did a, a tight 30, tight <laughs> 30, something like that. And man, great guy. 
hope to speak to him again. So, yeah, nothing yeah. but yeah, as D- DLR says. Exactly. Well, on that note, let's get to that interview. And thank you for downloading and streaming the DLR cast as always. Thanks for listening. Danny, you have put together one of the greatest music-related books. I can't speak for Steve, but I can speak for myself. Steve can weigh in on this. One of the greatest music books that I've seen in the last year. It is quite the undertaking. Steve, I'm not speaking out of line, right? No. In fact, if uh, if I got to say so, one of the big things about it is that it's so eye-opening. And I think we can get into this in a bit, but it certainly dispels a lot of rumors. And I think what a lot of people think about the concert business and what happens and really enlightening and also a hell of a lot of fun. Great. I'm glad you guys liked it so much. Yeah. I don't know if you call it a memoir, a scrapbook, an autobiography. What, what do you like to hear it called? Train wreck, maybe. <laughs> a labor of love. Um, you know, yeah, it's definitely a labor of love. I mean, I, I, a number of those stories I've obviously had for many years, and I always liked those stories. And those were the ones that I tended to share a lot over the years. So, I mean, by the time of the book being released came out, I was pretty good at telling those particular stories and they're always good ones. And and they're my favorite things that some of my favorite things that happened over the years. So uh, it it was nice to put them down all together in, in one group and then to take and match pictures up to the stories and they have to make the big decision, which is like when you're making a, a book or you're reading a book, most times you'll go 50 pages, 60 pages, and there's six or seven pages of pictures on better quality paper. Then it goes back to the regular book and then you get more pictures later. So you might get two or three picture sections throughout the book. The thing I always resented about that, and I understand why they do it because much cheaper to print the book that way but i i didn't want to like pay attention to that kind of a invisible rule because i hate it when i'm reading a book and i've got to go back 60 pages to match up the face of the guy in this picture in the picture section with the guy they're writing about on page 15 you know i know exactly what you mean (laughs) so so I said, and everybody, not, not within here, but everybody on the outside who was, who was trying to make this happen said, no, you can't do it like that. You're, the book's going to be too expensive. So I said I didn't care because I felt that those pictures are so belong with whatever words that go along with them to, to fill out the story. Um, the pictures can fill out the story. The words can fill out the story. But I was just adamant about having the pictures and the words all together so the story would flow so much better. And and that was the one one thing that I really insisted on when I was doing this. And I think it worked great. Did you have well, the title before you started putting together and then Steve can take over? <laughs> well, you, you know, the, um, the title kind of came out of the picture that's the, the cover. Um, that was taken in 1988, uh, 1988 on the um, Pink Floyd, right after the Pink Floyd tour started here in Phoenix, and they did two nights. And my security guy, one of the best tips in the world, he said, hey, we've only got parking for 8,000 people. And we're going to have 24,000 over, uh, over, over each day, 48,000. So he, he got the money from me to go rent all the parking lots around the stadium and we owned all the parking for the show. Uh, I made more money off of the parking than I did the show, which explains why I'm looking the way I'm on that cover. <laughs> so uh, yeah, you know, it's uh, it's been a good ride. Exactly, Steve. Back to you. Well, no more I questions. was well. I was just going to add that the the work and the attention you paid to detail and the quality of the book and the type of the book you wanted certainly paid off. Earlier today, I was reading the Amazon reviews and just the people raving about this in such personal tones. And many of them go back with you many many years in the Arizona area. And it was just the reviews. Uh, if you're skeptical and wondering about this book, just read these Amazon reviews, and uh, you will you will click the buy button very quickly. 
cost me a lot of money to pay for all those reviews to come out. So <laughs> <they're> believe me, <laughs> a lot of Pink Floyd parking to get those reviews. That's right. That's right. Exactly. So we wanted to have you on this show, not just because you have an amazing book, not just because you're the king of Arizona concerts. Do you own that domain, by the way, king of Arizona concerts? Because you should. You know, I I don't, but it's it's a good idea, isn't it? I think it is. Bye. Well, Steve and I have a podcast called the DLR cast where we talk about Van Halen and David Lee Roth, not because we're the biggest fanboys ever, but hey, let's face it, Van Halen, one of the greatest bands of all time. If you disagree, get out of this country. Fact. But uh, you actually had a lot of the Van Halen tours over the years. So you were actually in the room with Dave and Eddie at various points. What was the first one? Do you remember which tour or which year around? I don't remember the first time they came here to the Celebrity Theater. I can't remember hardly anything about those shows. They were in the late 70s um, at the Celebrity Theater. And all I remember was raucous, bedlam, just insanity. It was like, you know... When Van Halen and, and, and a bunch of the other groups from around that time came through, the ones that kind of brought a little glam and glitter to the stage, uh, in addition to some serious hard rock, um, it was such an eye-opener, you know, when, I mean, because like you, you hear Pretty Women, uh, the song Pretty Women, or... Uh, uh, running with the devil. I mean, they have this great character and this great, just great sound to it. The production and the engineering on it were just amazing. And it, it brought out all the subtle nuances of, of what is considered hard rock music. So that when the beautiful thing about the way they recorded was when they came on stage, I mean, they obviously sounded somewhat like the records but there was so much more bombastic live and and it's a tribute to that music um how they were able to put it together and record it and give it to you so you know all you had to do at home to make it sound like live was turn it all the way up and get thrown out of your apartment or your home or whatever for noise but 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 the thing was is it you know, a lot of groups, they record the way they sound live, which leaves them nowhere else to go when they get on stage. And that was the difference between the artfulness of, a, of the Van Halen records. It was when, when they came out, and if you had never heard them before, they just pretty much put a nuclear burn on your face and take all your hair with it, you know. And, and, and that's, that's what it's like listening to a great band. The Van Halen promoter storyline is the brown M&M's thing where if they found any brown M&M's, they were going to trash the dressing room or walk out or anything like that. So did you have someone on your staff specifically on brown M&M duty? Well, you know, as the story goes, and it, and it turns out it was true, the, um, the reason they did that was because they, they had a pretty extensive rider by the time they turned into a, an arena band. I mean, they went from from the time that record went out and, and small halls, they weren't in small halls for very long. Mm -hmm. And, and in order, and, and this was at the outset of, of great hard rock touring bands. And they were one of them. Um, and they kind of sort of led the pack because they were just before people like priest and scorpions and, and all those great European bands that had been around for a while. But they didn't quite pop beyond uh, being um, kind of cult bands or, or notorious, but not hugely well-liked yet. And, and Van Halen was kind of at the beginning of that. It, it, was, uh, it was quite a time to be sure. But um, yeah, they, <laughs> it was something else. Got it. Brown M&Ms and all. But the, you know, but the, the brown and M and M thing. I'm sorry, I lost my tractor. They, they they claim that they put that in there to see if people were reading the rider itself. Now, as a promoter, I don't really read production riders. But back then in the '70s, I didn't have a full staff, so I had to read those things. And um, I made 
in, in, in my end, I made sure that they didn't, but I was partnering those shows in the Coliseum that played here with a guy named Brian Murphy, who was the promoter at Avalon Attractions in Los Angeles. And, and Brian and I had a thing. We did some shows together. He brought me some good acts over the years, but he didn't, he didn't feel like having to mind the date over in Phoenix from LA when he knew me and we were friendly. So we just did them as partners together. So I was really able to benefit from Brian's knowledge of the band and their idiosyncrasies, you know, the do's and the don'ts, uh, you know, if you want to get along with them. And uh, he, he says every once in a while, I, I like to get a, a bag of brown M&Ms and just leave them in the dressing room for him just to, just to piss him off. But, uh, but no, we, we read that carefully and, and, and noted that, you know, it's like, this is a band to be reckoned with. And let's face it, you know, when they send out those riders that can often be pretty overbearing, if you want to know the truth, the bottom line is, is, is in their case and in most bands cases, they're, they're writing that stuff out in extreme detail so that you can put on the best possible show that you can for them. And, you know, people go, God, aren't those riders a pain in the ass? Well, sure, they're a pain in the ass. But the thing is, if you follow it and you have conversations with them, by the time they get to town, they're going to be comfortable with you. You're going to be comfortable with them. And you have a beautiful day in the arena. The band comes in and they see that you're happy. The guy's done everything you wanted. And that's when you have great shows, is when everybody in back, before the band gets there, is happy as opposed to they walk in on screaming scenes, you know, and the, some speakers in a fall or the stage is going to collapse or the ushers aren't going to show up. You know what I mean? Stuff like that. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, we took all that. We took it all to heart, believe me. And, and that's great rationalization right there. So you were there for the early days around the celebrity theater and all that you coming in and out of the live nation fold, you were there in the 04 Sammy tour, you were there for the Roth. Uh, Steve, is it 07 or 08? I always forget. The, the uh, first uh, reunion was 07 when they went out on the road with uh, Wolfgang on bass guitar. Yeah, so Danny was around even more than David Lee Roth was around Van Halen. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, I, you know, what I always loved uh, was, was the bar on stage with Sammy. Uh, that, that was always fun. I, I love going because I could I could just go up there as a door. I don't I don't remember. Was it, be, it was behind a curtain or something like that. But I could walk right onto the stage. Nobody would see me. And I go pull myself a drink. And if Sammy wasn't singing right then, he would pour one for me. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, that was a good time. All of them were great, though. Good. Just, you know, like in those early days with Dave, it was kind of like sex education classes. And, and he didn't even really have to say anything, but, you know, everybody in that room was horny. You know, that, that's what a Van Halen concert does to you. Proclivities, uh, are, proclivity, proclivities are paramount and uh, morals and, uh, and uh, you know, nerves go out the window, I guess, especially when you're fueled by Moral, fun things. <laughs> morals be banned. <laughs> Did you also uh, have some of David Lee Roth's solo tours over the years, like Skyscraper and Eat em and Smile? You know, because um, that time period is such a fog to me. I mean, if Same I, here. If, if, I, if I look through, I actually have to look through lists of shows. I wonder if I have this here. Let me show on a second. Wow. Look at this. Look what I got right here. <laughs> you see ordered. that? Yeah. Yeah. The biggest this binder clip I've ever seen. <laughs> 1990 to 2005 shows. Wow. And they're like, there must be 20 on each page. And I'm telling you, this thing is four pounds. It's bigger than the book. Um, <laughs> And, and I'll tell you what, between all, just reduced to this little few pounds of, of, of papers, this list here, that right there is enough to wipe out the memories of about a thousand people. 
you know, it, uh, I would have to really look through there closely to, to tell you about dates of, of anything, but that right there represents a large part of it. Now I got to go find the seventies and eighties to match up to this and, and I'll have a complete set. Well, Danny, let me ask you this kind of along the same vein, not necessarily Dave specific, but somebody like Dave comes out of Van Halen or various bands through their careers. You once booked them in arenas, you saw that rise, and then you saw what's going to be inevitable, especially in hard rock, a bit of a decline. I mean, through the years, whether it was Dave, like we saw, or other bands, I can think of Motley Crue and a slew of other folks through the 80s and 90s. How did you balance maybe the demands and needs and and maybe even kind of emotions to a degree from when you book these guys so big and then, you know, at the Enormo Dome or whatever it might be to, all right, well, now four or five years later, a couple members change or whatever the case might be, the market changes. Now you're struggling to put them in a 2000 uh, seat place. I mean, what what goes through what happens then is and is it really it, it must just come down to straight business, obviously. Well, it does and it doesn't because you see what happens is, is when you're building up with new groups and, you know, it's, it's easy to talk about a band that's big right now, but then as a listener or a promoter, um, you, you get to know these people as they're growing up in, in, in business and, and their stature and so forth inevitably almost everybody falls off that high perch and or gets knocked off of it but but what's interesting for instance van halen they had gary sharon which was kind of a blemish uh, by comparison to the big days of dave and sam um you know but it's like there's this one of the biggest groups in the world going through the ebbs and flow um, the Scorpions, I mean, they started as a small band. They were support, uh, Priest, um, who, you know, all Motley, all of these groups started as support and they built themselves up and somehow they all managed, you know, life happened. People sure. things happened. Uh, people dropped, like you said, people dropped out of bands. The bands changed. And, you know, the audience is like, they're like the little kids in a family from a broken home when something happens, you know? <laughs> Great analogy. And, <laughs> so and, true. And, 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 and they're so hurt and so annoyed and, and, you, and they don't want you to stop and, and give them the logic of, listen, man, how hard is it for four, for, for two people to get along, a man and a woman to be going steady or get married or whatever. And that now you're talking about four or five guys typically in rock bands and everybody has the exact same goals, money, chicks, stature, fame, you name it. And then they get it. And, and there's no roadmap. And these guys are, they're, they're just a bunch of freaks from wherever they come from LA, Indiana, Phoenix, whatever. And, you know, at a certain point, they, they begin to develop their own identities, which is the worst thing to ever happen to a band because right. now, they're, now they're buying homes and they're getting married and they have kids and it's not the same. And, and the, the, the listeners, the fans, even though that same stuff's happened in their lives, they refuse to admit that that has to happen in Rockstar's <laughs> life. It's true. You know, so then they break up. I mean, right now I'm still, I mean, if you go to any of the fan sites, I, I like a Pink Floyd fan site, you know, who was it? Sid Barrett or Dave Gilmore? <laughs> they're not really, they're not really Pink Floyd. Sid and, Dave, Sid and Roger aren't in the group. Okay, whatever. You know, but they're still arguing about it. And then you go on, the, on and you look at these people who are doing this and they're 60, 70 years old. They haven't gotten over it yet. It's incredible. Oh, uh, before I forget, I just remembered a Dave story that you got to hear. I went, I went and did a show with, with them and I think Poison opened okay. and it was in, and it was in El Paso. Don't ask me how I ended up with El Paso, but I did. So I went there, we had a good show. A lot of people showed up and afterwards the crew guys and a couple band members said, Let's go across to Juarez. 
I go, I've never been there before. So I figured, you know, they had a car, we'll go over and, and uh, we had a park at the, uh, you know, at the line the state line to the country. And, and we got out and walked and they took me into this place called Caesar's Palace and left me there. Uh, about four in the morning, I woke up, no clothes, no wallet, nothing. And, and somebody there found them for me. They said they put them away to keep them safe. And I had to walk back to El Paso. Um, I don't know. I could never blame Dave for that one, but it was a fantastic show. Um, I, I just remember, I just remember thinking, God, I can't ever book a show with these guys again. They're going to think I'm a lightweight. So, uh, you know, I, I did end up doing more Dave shows after that, but none quite like that. That was scary for a minute. But wow. here we are. It's okay. There, there, wow. Danny. I think that's the last place I'd want to wake up after a long night with no clothes, no wallet, no nothing, you know? Oh, so. man. Uh, it, it was like, I'm, I'm going, all right, it can't get any worse than this. How, <laughs> no. na how naive could I get? Oh. <laughs> So, yeah, you mentioned Gary Sharon's name before. So, of course, you promoted extreme concerts over the years. So sure. it's it's intriguing to me about how you had Dave before, during and well, I shouldn't say before. Yeah, Dave during and after and again in Van Halen. You had Sammy Hagar, who was a huge touring act. Did you have him in Montrose? That would have been way too early. You know, um, I don't remember ever having, you know, I had Montrose. My first experience with Montrose was when they played the Stars Born concert here in 76. Uh, it was Santana and Graham Central Station, Montrose. Wow. Peter, Peter Frampton headlined. What and a lineup. It, the tickets were $3.50 to get in with this one caveat. You had to be there by 9 a.m. and you couldn't oh leave uh, or else you couldn't come back in because they were filming for for the movie and they wanted to have stadium scenes. So rather than try to do fake stadium scenes, they they booked a real rock concert and they hired Bill Graham, who hired me to help. And, and that's what we did for that week and a half. We did this incredible show. Um, and uh you know, a lot's changed since 1976, only 45 years ago, right? 45 years, 45 years. And, and what a, you know, what a time that was. Um, yeah, you know, it, it, it's a funny thing with these guys. Um, unlike a lot of bands, you know, most bands won't reform once they, uh, once they break up. And the, the thing with these guys, um, I think all along is, it had to be, and it's not to cheapen anything, but the fact is that they they constantly would get offers to get back together, and the numbers just kept growing, and it gets to the point, literally, where it's uncle. All right, all right, I stop. You know, and and the more you know, the more that number goes up, it's like guys are looking at each other, going, "Can't we kind of get along for a couple of months?" And, uh, <laughs> you know and go do this um you know and 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 i think that plays into it an awful lot um and, and you know it's like the fans are always waiting around for their favorite bands to get it together and to come back and play in one form or another i'll tell you what though I, you know when sammy took over he he used the same similar type of fun crazy antics and and the, just the whole model that that you know he was already like that gary was never quite like that and and he he really had he had two pairs of big sho shoes to fill and i i wouldn't wish that on anybody you know you know and he was really good i mean yeah. he didn't suck he didn't suck or anything but it was like you didn't have just one but you had two of the faces on the mountain carved in there you know and it's like is there room for a third um apparently the answer turned out to be no because they you know went back to their respective corners and started over again so you know yeah 
totally away from Dave Lee Roth and Van Halen. You just brought up a good point with reunion tour offers. I think the only two bands where the people are still alive or only three where the people are still alive and there's the fortune and no one has said yes, or basically ABBA, the Smiths and the kinks. Otherwise I think every single reunion has been done that can be done. Yeah, I mean, they, they've been talking about the, the kinks forever, um, but, you know, their drummer died, but if it, it's basically Dave and Ray. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, the Smiths, I don't know. I, I, I guess maybe that would be fun, but apparently Robert doesn't think so, right? Um, who else? Who was the first one you said? Uh, Abba. That, that ABBA had a billion on the table. The Kinks had a hundred million that they turned down. And I'm not sure what uh, the Kinks had on the table. I'd have to assume the Kinks had two or 300 million on the table. Oh, I don't know. I mean, you know, the, I, I think you're, no offense, but I think you're, uh, the, the fondness in your heart for the Kinks is getting a hold of you and carrying you away. The Kinks were never in America. They were never a huge drawing act. Um, they, they had some tours, they had some years where they could do arenas and that, but I mean, every time I did them, you know, I'd be around 2,500 to 5,000 people, which is nothing to sneeze at, but it, it's not like the 12 and 15,000 arena type sales that we get. Um, I wish they would, I wish they would play again together, but you know, I, I did a show with Ray Davies about mm, 10 or 11 years ago. And you know what? I didn't need to have the kinks in the way. He was phenomenal. Um, <laughs> he had some band, a nobody band playing with him. He did solo. He played with them. It was just so much fun. Um, before the show, me and Alice Cooper went backstage to find Ray because I, I, Alice wanted to say hello. And at the same time, neither of us knew we were going to say it. At the same time, we said to him, Ray, he was so happy to see us. He goes, so uh, you guys are going to watch the show and we look at him and go, you're our Chuck Berry. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and he loved that. He actually blushed. It, he goes, wow. That's great. You know, he loved it. Did you guys get to see his play? Uh, the Ray Davies one in New York City. Has it played in New York? Well, he did a like a residency in the early 2000s that I saw, but I didn't no, know. No, no, no. Um, a few years ago, he had a, in England. He had sunny afternoon. Oh, and and it was the story of the Kinks on stage. Absolute genius. It was wonderful, uh, but it, it's just so, for some reason it's never made it over here. I I think they're still planning on doing it, but uh, it, it was in the midst of all the stuff that happened last spring. So it's yeah. it's on the it's on the shelves for now. I think, but. If you ever get a chance to see that, I hope they filmed it because it was so great. We got to see it at Drury Lane or wherever it was over there. It was great. Hmm. So, Danny, got to ask, here we are a year later into this pandemic. No shows. Um, I mean, <laughs> as far as what do you perceive or what, you know, what are you working on as far as the next steps as hopefully this thing is trending away? We might have a we might have a summer concert season. Well, currently, currently, I'm I'm trying to sell a book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm promoting that in lieu of everything else. Yeah, I'd like to, you know, I was hoping for Memorial Day, but you know, I, I'm very happy to see as of as of right now, beginning of March, that the the numbers are starting to slide in the right direction, backwards, down, whatever, and and that's a good thing. Um, I think what's going to have to happen is we're going to have to get through. Uh, you know, the next couple of months with the numbers con con continuing to go down um, so that people and, and everybody gets their vaccines. I think the combination of those two things are essential to us coming back. The thing is, is, you know, the, the bands that will be able to come back sooner than others will be the medium sized to small acts because those bands typically don't have to go and assemble super large crews to uh, to take them out on the road. Um, you also got you also got to consider that all of the halls, other than the basketball arenas, hockey arenas, all of the halls, which there's you know probably 
a dozen or two in every state have been closed all along. They're going to have to go through the whole massive reorganization of cleaning those buildings up, making sure everything works and hiring staff back. So that's going to take, you know, I don't know how long that takes. It depends on how big the hall is or how involved it is. But you're, you're looking at between bands having to, they have to, and bands are going to have to rehearse um, before they, before they get on stage. So you got to figure like from the time that they say, and, and under what, you know, what rules is it? Uh, is it going to be with social distancing in the seats? I mean, in the one, two, 3000 seaters, I, I can't afford to pay the bands to play even a, even a fair amount, much less a proper amount. Um, if you're going to cut out all those seats. So it really, really is essential for the whole thing to work. I think, my opinion only, and I think there's others that agree with me, is it's got to be 100%. We got to see all the people in there. If at first they got to do mass, then let's do mass. Let's be safe. If you bring a beer back to your seat, obviously you're not going to have a mask on while you're drinking it, just like anywhere else. Same rules apply. So, I mean, if I'm a betting guy, I would say by Memorial Day, you're going to see more and more shows, but they're not going to be of the production quality that you see with the bigger national bands, uh, more regional type of stuff, um, you know, just bars opening itself, uh, you know, is a big deal. And, and I know a lot of places bars are already open and, and, and they're working, Um you just got to keep a number, uh, an eye on those numbers and see how they're going. Because uh, if they go back up again, we're just going to go through this all over again. Yeah. And if it goes and it goes up again, and what happens if we mix in another strain that they're talking about, some secret sauce that's going to screw us up even further? I mean, it, it, it's definitely limbo time here still for me. Um, we've got shows uh that that have been booked in the in the may and june and and now july i'm seeing those slipping away because the band like i i got um in vegas one of the, my main halls up there the smith center uh just told me earlier this week they're not going to be open until september hmm. so if they're not going to be open until september i'm not putting any shows there so that means I got to go back to the acts and say, let's find some other dates down the road in the future. And, and it's like, it's turned into like one great big parking garage on the calendar. You know what I mean? Right. Cause we're just moving everything this way and that way. And, and then it's like, all right, can I hold uh, February 20th, 2022? Oh, there's six holds on that date. <laughs> right. You know, I, it, it, it's going to be a mess. When, when we get back, it'll be a good mess, though, because people are going to be using their coupons and their tickets and whatever to go see those shows. They've been holding on to those tickets for so long. And, and, uh, and that's a great sign for everybody how anxious people are, you know, wanting to read. This is like symbolic of turning back to your own life, you know, sure. and, it, and, it's a, and it's a big deal. It's a big sure. deal. I appreciate that really thought out answer there. Uh, I'm, I'm tapped for things to ask. Like Danny crams about like 60 minutes of information in about 20 to 25. Like he's, he's been doing this a long time. I don't know what else to ask him. Do you have anything else, Steve? Actually, it's non-music related, Danny. Uh, it's actually more of a sports question. Growing up in Chicago, being a long-suffering uh, Cubs fan and Bears fan, <laughs> Uh, what really blew me away, because I am personally just a massive, I guess you can call it an NFL history buff. And the fact that you knew that you were friends with Brian Piccolo and the amazing Gail Sayers just was, uh, that blows my mind. And and I'm sure you met a lot of those guys through the years, you know, Buttkiss or whoever else. I mean, uh, uh, you know, the 85 Bears, whoever it might have been. There were so many great players uh, that came through there, but that really, that I just loved reading that. That was really impressive. You know, it was really in the 60s, being at Wrigley Field and getting to be close with people like Ernie Banks or people on the Bears and, and, and meeting George Hallis and uh, Sid Luckman, the great quarterback. He showed up in a suit in a chauffeur-driven limousine for practice. I love <laughs> Sid. Sid Luckman was the coolest guy ever. That's a he rock star. He was a rock star, man. He invested his money wisely. He made some good money in the forties when he was with the bears and he, and he was such a nice man, but 
and, and then Brian Piccolo, you know, these, I, I got to be around a lot of great famous people, many of which you wouldn't know that they were famous by talking to them because they're just regular people and, and they were good people. And, and it was different 50, 60 years ago. We, while everybody dreamed of getting money and, and fame and fortune, not that, that many really were getting it at that time, the way we do it now. I mean, look at all the people who are superstars. You got to ask yourself, what did they do to, to get their own TV show? Uh, you know, a, a, a guy, right. a guy in a, a funny looking guy in Vegas has a pawn shop and he's a multimillionaire now. I mean, that <laughs> right. was not happening in, in the 50s and the 60s. Everybody was just kind of growing up and and learning about the, the modern age and, and being caught up in in what mostly is very, very positive, all the great things that came about through the 60s. I mean, we went from dial phones to punch button phones to watts lines to talking on Facebook. I mean, the, the, the progression of everything that's taken place since I was a kid and got to got to get into the Beatles and other great music, uh, and, and, and which led me here. Um, you know, it's it, it's been a very exciting ride, you know? I mean, I, I don't know where it's gonna go from here, except uh, some things are so good that they'll never go out of style. And, and I think that's music. And I think that's live events of, of all kinds, not just music. Uh, people have, I mean, over, think about it, over all the centuries, they had the Roman gladiators and, and those, that would be their entertainment. And there was also singers and cello players and piano players like Beethoven. And, and, and I mean, Beethoven was the first tribute act to himself. Think about it. <laughs> he, he couldn't play. So he had to teach somebody how to do his concerts while he was alive, you know, um, and, and that's, you know, you're, and you're hearing Beethoven on every stage in America today. I mean, they're still paying tribute to that old cur curmudgeon, you know, so, <laughs> you know, so, so if they're once, if they need to have a, a journey tribute group, damn it, go ahead and do one. 